Okay, so we're back to cracks in postmodernity with Limpida, who I found on the Computer Room podcast with Default Friend, who was recently on here. So Limpida is a detransitioner from male to female um, and back again. So I'm very interested in hearing your story and hearing your takes on you know, stuff going on in our culture today. So start wherever you would like to start. All right, so um, I'm 24, um, so I'm not super old. Uh, back in high school around 2012, um, I started to get introduced to Tumblr a little bit. Yeah. And um, around 2013, after spending about a year in some, uh, you know, the usual Tumblr fair, the, uh, you know, all the weird sexual labels that they have all the weird trans labels that they have yeah um i started identifying as non-binary uh -huh. um and then once i was a senior i decided i was not non-binary i was just a, a a trans woman so to speak um and then uh college i joined a left-wing cult a, a black lives matter cult um and um, by the end of it, around the time that I was getting kicked out of it, uh, I, my whole life had sort of taken a dive and I decided now was the perfect time to start medical transition because I thought it was gonna save my life, kind of. When you say cult, do you mean like in an ideological sense or do they actually do like ritualistic kind of stuff? Uh, they, it was an ideological sense, but there mm. was some like left-wing ritual about it okay Interesting. Yeah. um they um they they were very fond of uh, restorative justice okay. um which was uh you accuse someone in front of everybody else and then they have to defend themselves and they can't actually prove that they didn't do the thing they were accused of no. because the harm was so great you know that kind of thing okay. um I get that. yeah then um so that so 2019, I started um, hormones. I went to a Planned Parenthood clinic, and I did it through informed consent, which means that they didn't evaluate me for anything. Um, I just showed up. 45 minutes later, they gave me a prescription. So um, there's no like psychological kind of session or anything at all. None. Just like on demand. Basically, is that like do all Planned Parenthoods do that, or is it just like particular ones? I don't know if all of them do it, but I know that all the ones that I have ever had to search have done it. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to three of them. Wow. Yeah. Um, so then, um, then pandemic hits, uh, everyone's on lockdown. I'm fresh out of the psych ward after, after um, escaping that cult, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, some time passes and about a year and a half on hormones, I start to realize uh, I'm not liking what it's doing to me. I'm in actually quite a lot of physical pain, not like a lot, a lot. It was uncomfortable, but you know, in, in very sensitive areas in my body and uh, realized I didn't actually want to be sterile. Um, but I still held on to that this belief, this delusion that I that I was a woman somehow, um, and didn't really know what to do. 
started looking through all the research into hormone replacement therapy and long-term effects, whatnot. Then I found um, the detransitioner Reddit, r slash detrans, which is one of the only places on the internet where you're going to see like a community of this thing. Um, Started talking to people, started thinking about my experiences and realized uh, it wasn't what I thought it was. And sort of languished in a limbo between I don't want to come off of it I don't want to stay on it until um, January of this year I finally bit the bullet and stopped the treatment and I've been feeling good ever since yeah. okay so I have a lot of questions I guess I would start with I don't know, like I find the whole Tumblr phenomenon fascinating. And I like, I know you talked about it with Default Friend when you were on and like she talked about it with me um, because it uh, it generates so many of these like super niche um, interest groups, but also identity categories. And because it's such an um, atomizing microcosm that it's, it's not an actual community. Like it's very easy to just hear something and then just say like, okay, you know, this is me now. Um, but like, I'm wondering like what attracted you first to the concept of like being non-binary and then to being trans, a trans woman, like what were there certain things in your experience that you found resonated with the people on there? Or do you feel like it was just like the novelty of it? Um, I think novelty does play a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, so I was only, when, when, when this happened, I was only a few years out from moving from New York to a suburb in New England. Okay. Um, and, uh, I was feeling really, I mean, I was feeling sort of stifled, um, and like, I couldn't go anywhere and there wasn't anything to do. Uh, and I didn't know that many people, uh, so there was there was the novelty aspect of it. Um, there was also that I was already not doing so hot as far as like mental health was concerned. Um, puberty coming in was very stressful for me. Yeah. Um, I had undiagnosed autism. Um, didn't really know what was going on. Um, and I went. Um, what it did for me was was it gave a meaning to what I was going through. It, it yeah. helped, it not helped. It actually made me feel like what I was going through was so unique mm-hmm. and no one else was going through it. And it's so special and no mom, you really wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and the fact that there were so many other people that were talking about it from all kinds of different angles. There was mostly girls on the site, but there were a few, there were a few guys and a lot of them were already trans. And, um, you know, everything, not everything they said, but a lot of what they said resonated and resonated doubly so um, once I got super indoctrinated in, in, into like the whole Gamergate feminism mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I fell really hard into that. And a lot of the rhetoric that came out of it and a lot of the figures that came out of it were just openly hated. Them, you know? And this was also when Me Too was going on and, mm-hmm. and whatever. So it was um, stressful for me to be a man okay. um, and to accept that I was a man. 
because of how, um, you know, how toxic they were. And I didn't want to grow up to be that. So I thought mm-hmm. that meant that I was this other thing. Interesting. So I think first, like the whole need to be unique, like, this is, I mean, I think on a certain level, like it's a universal need, like it's a valid need to know that my existence like is particular, has a particular value, but that can very quickly turn into something, um, something uh, not realistic, something problematic, you know, like I know I relate to that very much. And I, like, I guess I attribute that partially to my upbringing because you know, like I grew up in a lot of privilege, a very comfortable lifestyle. Um, and I was always being told by my parents, like, you know, everything I did was amazing, that I was very special. Um, and I, I don't know, like, I wasn't given a lot of boundaries. Like I wasn't, um, I was rarely corrected. And if I did, it wasn't, there was nothing um, predictable or like uh, systematic about it. So like, I very much latched onto this uh, uniqueness complex because I thought like this is what validated me that I'm not like other people I'm you know um, so like I don't know where do you think that uniqueness thing or that draw of the the kind of non-binary identity came from you um I was sort of sorry can can I tell my can can you hear my dog barking in the back it's fine it's faint it's super faint okay um so the uniqueness draw, I, being that I was um, autistic, um, I, I hate to like bring too much of that into it, but it mattered um, at the time. Uh, I kind of had a very weak self-concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a very strong internal locus either. Um, I was, I, I had a, I had a similar upbringing to yourself, um, you know, privileged background, um, you know, being told that everything was great, but the only reason everything was great was if I like did good work. If I, if I slipped at all, I, um, I was immediately like the worst kid in the world. Okay. Um, that was, that was hard to deal with. So I didn't, I wasn't really doing things for myself. Uh, a lot of the time um and by the time that I was doing them for myself um you know I there were already like I was so stressed out about performing Mm -hmm. that it was it was hard for me to accept it as a part of myself because if I failed ever then it meant that um this is not really me you know um the other thing too um, with the non-binary, like, uh, is with this poor self-concept, I tend tended to mirror other people a lot, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I had a lot of female friends at the time too. I didn't really make a lot of male friends when I was in um, in high school, and and my closest friends forever have always have almost always been female. Um, well, not in elementary school, but in in high school, like. All of, almost all of them have been female and I was mirroring at the time um, my girlfriend I, I was I was in a long-term relationship with this girl from sophomore year until until the pandemic so eight years or so um, and we sort of and she was also autistic so we sort of like melded personalities a little bit swapping 
back and forth, masculine, feminine traits. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was a more sensitive guy, um, the fact that I was, I dressed a little bit more, you know, trendy, or I was like, I was a hipster before hipsters existed at my school, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, And it, you know, it made me realize like I was not like other guys at the school. Um, I also wasn't really like the girls, but I already knew that. Um, So non-binary, it felt like sort of fit me because people thought I was gay and I wasn't. And, you know, I wasn't really all that feminine, but I was more feminine than other guys. And like non-binary put a label on it. Um, I didn't know how to just like exist normally. Yeah. No, and I like I see that that narrative is super common and like you and I don't have a huge age gap, but like I remember for me when I was like in high school and even younger, it was always obvious that there are certain girls who are a little bit more boyish and vice versa. And it was a thing that like you have tomboys, you have, you know, like sissy boys. It's always been a thing like it's nothing, you know, groundbreaking. But it was always clear to me that, you know, even if you have certain feminine traits as a boy or masculine traits as a girl, like that doesn't mean you are the opposite sex. And even with me, like I had certain interests that most boys didn't like, but my parents, as much as they were, you know, like very liberal, very open-minded, they made it very clear, like you can play with a Barbie doll, but you know, you're a boy. Like it's not a mistake that you're a boy. And there are moments where I was like, but you know, people make fun of me. Wouldn't it be easier if I were a girl? But like, it was always made clear in a very gentle way. Like, okay, but you're just a boy who has different interests. So I'm wondering like, why do you think we're, this narrative is changing? Like, why are we moving away from like, oh, some people are tomboys to no, you're actually non-binary or you're trans. Like, where do you think this is coming from? Um, I think there's a lot of different places where it's coming from and it sort of converges into the all-consuming like gender identity narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the one hand, like if you look at it through ideological spread, a lot of it is from trying to be more progressive, trying to sort of eliminate some of the boundaries between male and female so that it's more egalitarian mm-hmm. uh, or rather more explicitly feminist. Um, and the other part of it is also like the political interests or the economic interests of yeah. the doctors and the academics, uh, the academics especially, like they have to keep um, coming up with new theories um, like that they just build off of ideas that are already pretty solid to the point where they're so abstracted from reality mm-hmm. that it's hard to take them seriously but that's what they have to do in order to stay published in order to stay relevant the doctors of course I mean there's a lot of money to be made from giving people hormones that damage their bodies because mm-hmm. um, you make someone a lifelong patient and then they have to keep coming back to you no matter what. Um, so it's, it's some of that. And then there's also the, um, there is a conservative aspect to it too, where there are some evangelical parents that can't handle the fact that they have gay kids. Mm. And so they're like, they just trans them. Um, really? It has so- that? 
Yeah, they do that. I don't, I, I from, I mean, I don't know that many like neocon evangelical people, but from what I understood, like being trans is like way worse than being gay. I don't know. For, for some, for, it yeah. depends on where they are. Um, I know that in Texas, it's, it's somewhat popular oh, uh, to do that. It depends on the church too, a lot of the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's also, there's also one other avenue, which is just um, like the uh, Munchausen mom mentality, which is usually the Munchausen moms are, are more liberal um, and they want their kid to be the most oppressed. Okay. And like, you know, oh, this is such a tragic thing for the family, but we're pushing on, you know, that kind of thing um, okay. for narcissistic supply. Mm. Yeah, and also, I, I definitely think people fail to look at the socioeconomic, political implications of fostering this more fluid sense of gender, because um, it does further the, I guess, the power of, I think the state, but also, again, major corporations, if there are, if we can erase certain natural boundaries, then like, there are less inhibitions to creating this identity of consumer, you know. Um, but also, I think, with in terms of like state political power, if these natural boundaries are intact, like you have certain buffers against um, illegitimate uses of power by the state. Um, so I don't know. Like, I don't want to fall into the whole conspiratorial agenda kind of narrative, but you definitely see like this does help certain people in power. And it is to the detriment of, you know, everyday people, especially people who are not in positions of privilege, working class, oppressed people. Um, but I, I also, I mean, if you're comfortable with it, I, I would want to hear more what you see in the overlap between um, the autism spectrum and dysphoria, trans phenomenon in general, because I, I keep seeing this time and time again. So like, I want to know for you, like, how do you see that? sure um so the the first like noticeable thing about autism is the failure to pick up social cues mm -hmm. and, and you know um facial expressions uh you take things very literally too um sarcasm can be kind of hard irony can be kind of hard um you t tend to take people at their word so you don't really like your instinct doesn't go to check whether what someone is saying is true or not mm -hmm. a lot of the time, especially if there's emotivism attached to it. Yeah. Um, uh, autists uh, have very high affective empathy. So like if they see very high emotion in someone else, they will feel those emotions and, and mirror them, mm -hmm. but they have very low cognitive empathy. So they don't understand the position of the person that is feeling those things they don't understand like why they might be feeling those things or why those feelings might not be um appropriate for that time um we have poor self-concept like i mentioned before it's very easy to tell us what we are and we'll just take it on um we get very obsessive about things ocd is mm -hmm. super common in autistic people um and actually like a lot of people that are like detransitioners uh call their version of it with respect to transition a t ocd trans ocd 
because you you do obsess over every last part of your body um and then on the neurological level um there's just two like there's there's I don't know the the actual like specific uh, morphology of it, but there is a problem with how you um, assess sensory input. So you don't actually um, there, there's sort of no filter um, mm -hmm. between the sensory input and your rational brain. It just sort of comes in and yeah. takes a while to mature to the level if you ever do where you can recognize like, you know, what that input is. Um, so a lot of people have issues with like um, sound or with, with vision um, sensations. Some sensations just feel completely wrong and like and to a painful degree. Um, I don't think that it's like best to just like, you know, coddle someone with autism and try to like like let them avoid all those things I think it's yeah. best to like expose them to it but uh, at least that's what's been helpful for me um but the overlap is because like once once you hit puberty like that's that's a big change for a lot of people like everybody basically yeah. like it's 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 significant there's new feelings there's new thoughts there's new you know your body changes you're in kind of pain because you're you know you're growing um sex becomes something that people talk about um there are different like relationships between the sexes too when, once you hit puberty you go to high school um for an autistic person that can be extremely overwhelming and it can leave you feeling sort of disembodied um because you already have this weak understanding of yourself and basic connection to your body and to your surroundings and then once that starts changing all of a sudden and very rapidly um it can be it can it can hit you really hard yeah. um and it, it you know it, it at that point like if somebody's telling you like oh well the answer to all your problems is this thing and you offer it you always know you you always knew you were different you always knew you were a little off. Well, this is why, and this is why people bullied you too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, it's it's sad to me. I think on one hand, like you can definitely use the reality that there's is so much overlap between you know gender dysphoria and autism as a weapon, and be like, oh look, like everyone who transitions, they're like you know they're autistic, they have a problem, there's something wrong with them. But also on the other side, it's like. You know, people are struggling. A lot of people decide to transition or to say they're non-binary because there's a lot of suffering, especially in social contexts. And rather than give people the tools to face that in a way that's concretely helpful, you're like, oh, well, here's your answer is really a disservice to the person, you know, and it's. I think it's interesting what you said, that there is a lot of discomfort, there's a lot of fears that build up and rather than. At, like looking for someone who can help you to work through that it's like oh let's like you know shield you from that let's create you know this new identity that protects you from having to face it um but then I, i'm also wondering like do you draw a distinction between rapid onset gender dysphoria and like actual gender dysphoria do you see them to be different things um 
I, I sort of do, sort of. I don't think, well, the different, I think, all right, so ROGD, I would apply specifically to the cohort of um, teenagers and young adults that started to transition around the time that smartphones took off. Mm-hmm. Um, because that really seems to be the main vector in the spread is is the spread of the internet. Um, but as far as like real gender dysphoria, I mean, basically anybody who feels any kind of discomfort with um, their gender role or their just their sexual characteristics mm-hmm. has gender dysphoria. Um, I don't actually believe that there is some cohort of people for whom transition is actually medicine or or helpful in any kind of way. I think um, I think that's been fake from back when the science started almost a century ago. Yeah, I don't know because definitely there's something going on now with um, the advent of smartphones that. You know, someone who doesn't fit in socially can now very easily, very quickly um, identify with these categories. But historically, there have always been people who either didn't identify with their birth sex or who have attempted to present as the opposite sex to, you know, change, alter their bodies, whatever. Um, And it could be for reasons of like, you know, psychological trauma or perhaps a certain neurological condition, a chromosomal condition, whatever. Um, and I don't know, like when I hear stories of people who have transition, sometimes I feel like you can tell when there's someone whose discomfort with their birth sex is so profound and transcends again, like perhaps something that happened in their childhood. Like for some people, it does seem so deeply rooted in their sense of self, their sense of reality. Um, I don't know. It's hard to like delineate, but so, but you're saying like for someone who has that very deep seated sense of not identifying with their birth sex, who perhaps has sought psychological counseling to try to, you know, work on whatever trauma may contribute to their discomfort with their sex. Do you, so you're saying like to transition, whether through hormones or, you know, surgery, you think that would be, it wouldn't be a solution for them? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. What do you think, though? Like, what do you suggest to someone who does find themselves in that position? I think, um, and this is this has come up time and time again um, in a lot of the people that I talk to that have gone through this kind of thing, mm-hmm. is just not running from the core problem and not ruining your body. Um, to try to run from it Um, because it's I mean I've talked to people I I I talk to a lot of people because I'm in I'm in all the support spaces I guess Um, and there are you know I've spoken to people that have that have transitioned for 10 plus years that have gotten all the surgeries that you know for all, all intents and purposes like have trouble passing as their birth sex because of how drastically they've altered their appearance um and even they who acknowledge yeah I'm still uncomfortable with 
how I was born. I still have that like very ingrained feeling that I was born wrong. Um, even they'll acknowledge like it hasn't been worth it for them and they're lucky to still be alive a lot of the time. Yeah, because again, like it seems again and again that so much of what's needed before any type of transition is like a sense of support, a sense of like being valued as you are with your struggles, with your difficulties. And I think a lot of people don't have that sense of community. They don't have that, whether in their family or where they live, whatever. Um, and when you feel so alone in your suffering and your, you know, lack of comfort with yourself, then like, I understand why for some people this seems to be the only way out. Um, and I don't know, like, I definitely agree that going to the point of um, going to that like super invasive type of uh, intervention of surgery or even of hormones, like the fact that it's so hard to go back, like, yeah, I don't know. Like if uh, I can't say it cause I'm not in that situation, but like I would understand someone cross-dressing or presenting differently, but the invasiveness is just like, I don't know. I think it's, it's just such a risk. Um, but again, it's like, a, where is it? there needs to be such a more of a conversation about what are the other things that people need, like community, like whether it's psychological counseling. Um, I don't know, because the other thing I what you just said made me think of, like I had someone on a few episodes ago who was talking about this idea of gender as a gift. That's, um, a gift to be suffered with because like whenever you're given something that you haven't chosen you have to reconcile yourself your will with what's being given to you um and sometimes that is painful sometimes it doesn't fit our sense of reality or our sense of self but a gift can also be a beautiful thing but you need the tools to be able to reconcile what's been given to you to, to recognize that as much as yeah it's painful and it doesn't it's not always comfortable it doesn't always fit my sense of self well like who i am is a gift like who i am is valuable you know and that's a journey like that's definitely not an immediate thing um but uh, I'm, I'm curious to know more if you're comfortable sharing like the process of detransitioning um how does that impact your body like how does it feel to to go through that process um, well, it feels like I've been through three different puberties. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and two of them really fast as well. Um, well, the first thing that happened is, um, I, I almost immediately started producing testosterone again after coming off of my, um, I, I, I took spironolactone, which is, a an, um, an anti-androgen. Um, it blocks the production. It, it like it stops testosterone from being produced in the body. Um, and um, as soon as I stopped taking that, I started producing testosterone again, and I felt completely wired. I had so much energy. I was also incredibly uh, horny, because uh, that's also something that it does. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was on steroids um, and within like a couple of days, I noticed my hair, like my body hair getting thicker. 
Um, my facial hair came back in despite a lot of IPL treatments to try to remove it. Um, and my fat started redistributing too. Um, but mentally it was, it was very difficult. Like, like just the, the mental, like what, what it does to your brain is, is actually pretty profound because I found myself having, um, repetitive, like psychotic episodes, um, here and there, I was experiencing like some delusions prior to that. Like that, there's a reason I went to the psych ward in 2020, uh, 2019. Um, and, and estrogen actually also in males, it can cause psychosis as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but coming like, like totally re remapping my, like my sex hormones like that, um, did cause a massive, um, identity crisis I wasn't expecting because I had already like accepted okay I'm male this is what it is this is what I gotta do and there were I think two or three instances where I was just like swimming in fog I felt like there was no um like there were no boundaries between me and any object in the room um and yet at the same time I felt totally isolated from them it's a really weird sensation Um, but apparently I wasn't alone in that. Apparently a bunch of other, uh, transitioners, especially, um, if they've been on it for a long time, I was only on it for two and a half years. They have also reported like, yeah, you can have, you can have really bad breakdowns early in the, in in the detransition process. If you don't, um, know how to ground yourself and, and remind yourself, okay, this is, this is what normal is supposed to be, you know, um, because it does, it just changes everything. Um, and, and it's it's rapid because, you know, normal puberty, it takes 10 years to complete, roughly 10 years to complete. Um, this kind of like hormone, these kinds of hormonal changes, like my initial, like my transition took about a year for me to get to like peak, like that, like about a year and there were going to be no more changes after that um and so that was me going through a, an artificial kind of puberty very very quickly a, a, a level of development that wasn't supposed to happen um that fast and it happened just as fast when i detransitioned. Mm-hmm. um what was the other thing i was gonna ask so do you feel like as you're going through the process, like, did you feel supported? Yeah. By other people? Yeah. Yeah. My, I, I had a, a difficult relationship with my family um, in large part because of the trans thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but since, since I got out of the cult, um, even while I was trans, like they were, they were supporting me, they wanted me in their lives and everything. And mm-hmm. once I decided I was going to stop, they, you know, continued to support me. Uh, my friends were supportive. I lost some trans friends, um, but it is what it is. Um, for the most part, like people have stuck by me, and and that's not that's not the most common experience, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. No. And the other thing I think of is like I see how many people become very reactionary towards the trans stuff that's happening right now. And it's like, you know, on one level, it's understandable because the way that it's being pushed on young people who don't have the tools to think through it, like, yeah, it's very violent. It's very concerning. But my fear is that the reactionary rhetoric doesn't get to the root of 
what people really need. And again, it's like a lot of people feel isolated, feel not only disconnected from their identities, but from their bodies, like don't have um, the means to really make sense of like, what is my body for? Like, what is its value? And that's, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way our culture is set up that like the difference between male and female bodies, like it doesn't really, there's no clear, um, like the way the society is set up, like there, there is no clear difference. Like there aren't tools to make sense of the unique gifts that our bodies have. So yeah, like you can attack trans ideology all you want. You can create all these bills to ban whatever from schools, whatever. That's okay. That's one thing. But until I think we address what, why someone comes to this conclusion, like I want to transition or I, I don't want to identify with my birth sex. I don't know. Like, I don't think you do much service to people if you stay at this reactionary level, you know? Um, on one level, that's true. On one level, that's true. Um, on another level, um, see, I'm, I, I always tend to view things politically, like mm -hmm. in terms of like how you get an advantage over someone else yeah. who is your enemy. Um, and holistically, what you're saying makes sense. But like in the immediate term, like the big threat, like, so, okay. When I was trans, mm -hmm. it was basically just an online thing. Yeah. It wasn't in schools yet. It was just like students doing it to each other. It wasn't teachers mm -hmm. doing it. Um, now it's teachers doing it. And yeah. they have the power to take kids away from their families. Um, yeah. It's psychologists doing it too. I've had a few psychologists who um, specialize in other things, but would not do anything to question the trans identity like they, they were not permitted to um because of, of of how the law was set up and i think that that causes um i think that exacerbates the problem i think that the the whole grooming phenomenon is is very real because it used to just happen online it used to be very casual but now there are like actual procedural steps in a lot of professional class settings specifically to get young vulnerable people to start transitioning and now that's the main vector of spread yeah. and that i think does deserve that kind of political response um it may not fix the problem permanently and we're definitely going to see a lot more insanity uh, a lot things are going to get really fucking weird um from here on out just because of how everything is set up but mm -hmm. um i i do think that that cutting it off here um isn't unwarranted no i see what you're saying yeah um no like it and also just a matter of justice like children who are vulnerable who again don't have the tools to think through this it is it is violent to impose it you know um i i don't know i just my hope is that yeah like in addition to those kinds of political battles that they're comes a more of a human conversation but okay but what are people going through what do they need because at the end of the day what's going to help someone going through the situation like a changing a law or like changing what's going on in the schools like people need support people need to be heard you know um but i guess the last thing that i want to ask you is like now that you're 
you know, you detransitioned and you accept like, you know, you are a male. What does masculinity mean to you now at this point? Um, at this point, I, uh, I think one of the main things is uh, it's, it's protective. Um, it's have like now finally like I, I feel the actual like power that comes with it like the physical energy and and um, you know the ability to you know just like you build muscle real fast you're you're a lot stronger like a, you're a lot stronger and um, also mentally like you're sort of set up for like not taking bullshit mm -hmm. and, and you don't worry so much about the emotional effects of things. You're more like rational. Uh, at least that's, that's how it's been for me. Like you, you focus more on the rationality of things and how things work. Um, and I think that for me, like masculinity means using those tools to try to protect people who don't have them or may not be able to use them for whatever reason. Um, and, and that's one reason why I, um, you know, talk on Twitter the way I do, the way that I write on Twitter, the way that I do. Um, but it's, it's seeped into other aspects of my life too. I've, I've sort of done a 180 from the kind of person I was um, three years ago where I was the one that wanted to be defended. I was the one that wanted to be protected um, I felt like there was no one out there helping me, supporting me, um, and I was refusing to help myself. And now that I have been helping myself, uh, I realize I have it in me to, you know, try to protect other people from uh, things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, this is it's just very enlightening to hear just firsthand, you know, um, the experience you went through, but also like the discoveries you've made at this point. And uh, no, I like, I really appreciate your transparency with it all because I hope for other people too, it just sheds lights on a conversation that's very complicated. And, you know, it just, there's a lot of pain behind it. I know a lot of people suffer, you know? So um, before we go, any plugs? I know, you know, people can follow you on Twitter, but anything else? Yeah, so on, on Twitter, the handle is at American Dog 1998. Um, and my uh, sub stack is called, uh, it's in Romanian. So okay. it's, it's hard, but the, the link is uh, strigoi.substack.com, S T R I G O I. And the, um, the blog itself is called which means holding hands with ghosts. Okay. Nice. All right. So they can follow you there, but otherwise, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah.